Think about the last time that someone made you a promise that seemed like it couldn't come true. Maybe it was your parents. They promised you a trip to the zoo and it was raining all day. Maybe it was your boss and he said he'd give you time off and you knew that you were swamped with projects so you didn't see how that would be possible. Maybe it was some other promise that was made. The extent to which you, I think, believe the promise has to do with both what you know of the obstacle and what you know of the character of the person making the promise, right? Because if it's someone who constantly makes promises and never keeps them, why would you have any reason to believe what they say? And if the obstacles are larger than the person realizes, how could you possibly believe that they could be overcome? And yet in this passage, we see, I think, Paul exercising a proper response to promises that God has made. And what that boils down to is the song that we sing from time to time, simply trust and obey. We see this throughout this passage. Paul believes God's promises, and he does what God has told him to do. And the uh, extended section that Jim read for us uh, has a lot of unfamiliar words in it. Um, and that's why I had him read it, so I didn't have to. No, I'm just kidding. But what it boils down to is this. Paul was being sent to Rome. And the centurion was trying to do a good job of making sure that Paul both got there promptly and safely and following the advice of the people that he had to give him that sort of advice. The wind was not cooperating at first. We saw that in verse 4. And then we see further difficulty and delay in verse 7. Also due to the wind, the weather being uh, contrary to them getting to where they were supposed to go. And then we come to verse 9. And when it says here that the fast was almost over, that raises the question of what time of year was it? What was the big concern about sailing? And uh, the fast would have been the Jewish Day of Atonement. And the, based on the way that their calendar worked, this would have fluctuated somewhere between mid-September and mid-October. And so either way, wherever it fell precisely in there, I believe at this time it would have been about the first week of October, you're getting to a time of year where in the sort of ships that they had and in the weather conditions that would have been prevalent at that particular time of year, you're getting to a dangerous time of year for sailing. And yet, they decided to proceed anyway. Paul warns them in verse 10 that the voyage would be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And I don't think here he has a uh, direct word from God about this because we see that that's different from what actually takes place. I think he's just saying, based on the time of year, the reality of the weather, and the nature of the craft that we're sailing in, we're not likely to make it if we leave and, and take this journey across the Mediterranean over to Italy at this time of year. You might ask yourself, what gave Paul the right to lecture the captain of the ship on good sailing practices? It seems a little presumptuous, perhaps. But I think part of it had to do with the fact that Paul had a sense that God wanted to get to Rome, and although God certainly can and later did perform 
miraculous deliverance, Paul didn't want to presume on God to do so, and so I think he felt it his responsibility to say, I don't think it's wise to do this. He couldn't control what they were going to do, but he could at least say, I don't think that we ought to do this. Perhaps we should wait until the spring. We see that the centurion does not listen to him, because humanly speaking, it would have made sense to listen to the pilot of the ship, the captain of the ship, instead of your prisoner, although we'll see later that he does listen to his prisoner. And so they proceed to sail anyway. And apparently the spot where they were at that moment was not large enough for them to overwinter the ship in. There's different sizes of harbors, of course, and uh, some are more or less suited due to the way that they face the wind and the configuration for harboring uh, ships over winter. And so their goal was to reach a city called Phoenix, which was further west on the island of Crete, and then they thought that they could safely uh, spend the winter there. Verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. And so their thought was, if we sail slowly along the coast, we should be pretty safe. Here's a wind that's blowing the right direction to get us to this harbor on the west side of Crete. And so they set out. But then verse 14, before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Iroquilo, as a northeaster, and when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And so you have to think about this. They wouldn't have had uh, a weather service to alert them of a coming storm. They wouldn't have had. Um, they wouldn't have had a craft with various electronics equipment to anticipate. Um, rocks and, and other threats to the ship coming and rushing up on them. And so in their particular case, the only thing that they could do was to give way to the storm. Because if they tried to go into it, it was going to snap the mast off and then they'd be stranded. So they decided just to, to go. Verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island named Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship and fearing that they might run aground on shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. And so they're taking reasonable steps, reasonable precautions to preserve the ship, but ultimately, to a certain extent, it's out of their hands at this point. Verse 18, The next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Looks pretty bleak. They've gotten rid of most of their provisions and all these other things in an effort to lighten the ship. They haven't seen the sun, so they don't know where they're going or where they're at. And... Uh, Luke uses one of these phrases he likes to use that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. No small storm was assailing us. Remember a few chapters back, he said, no small disturbance about a riot where they're trying to, trying to kill Paul. No small storm assailed them. So you're lost. You are potentially uh, down on your supplies. Your original goal was to carry cargo. That's been tossed overboard. Your hope is to be saved 
in terms of their lives, but there doesn't seem to be much hope of that either. So what's going to happen to Paul? What's going to happen to this promise of God that you'll stand in Rome? Because it's not going to be fulfilled if Paul drowns. It's not going to be fulfilled if they don't reach Italy. How is God going to keep His promise? Look at verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. The first phrase sounds like an, an I told you so, but I think he's just setting up what he's about to say next. He's setting up this contrast. This is what I expected to happen, but even so, we will be preserved. Verse 22, keep up your courage. Verse 23, an angel of God stood before me. Verse 24, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Verse 25, and this I think is the key verse of this entire passage. I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. I just want to pause there for a moment because God does not appear to us with angels or messages from heaven. We have received God's word in the Bible and that is sufficient for us to know God's will, God's purpose, God's design for us. And yet the same question stands before us that Paul had to answer in his own mind before he made this statement. Am I going to take God at His word or not? Didn't look likely. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know where they were at. They didn't have any expectation of surviving the storm. But God says, you're going to make it. Paul had to ask himself, do I really believe that? What were some things that would have gone into Paul's answer to that question? What is God like? What has God done in the past? Do I trust in God in light of those things? So what is God like? All throughout the Bible, we see that God is a God who keeps His word. Whether it be saying through a prophet what was going to take place, whether it be fulfilling His promise to punish the Israelites when they turned away in sin, whether it be His promise to deliver His people from various disasters throughout their, their history, God is a God who keeps His word. God is a God who loves and cares for His people. With those truths in mind, Paul could confidently say, I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Do we believe the same? Do we believe the same when God says, If you witness of me, the world will hate you. Because there's a lot of people preaching a kind of supposed Christianity who said, no, your life will be great if you follow Jesus. Your marriage will be perfect. You'll have money in your bank account. All your dreams will come true. Which sounds like a far more attractive message than if you follow God faithfully, life is not always going to be easy. 
Which one do you believe? Which one has God actually said? And it bears thinking about at this point that we have to understand what promises God has made to which groups of people in His Word. God made a promise to Noah that He would bring him safely back on the ark. That doesn't mean every time we set foot in a boat, we expect that the journey will be successful. I mean, that's a misunderstanding of a promise that was made to one specific individual and his family and applying it to ourselves today. We can't do that sort of thing. Or, you know, God says, I'll provide food for you in the wilderness. We say, well, I'm going to go out in the wilderness and I'm not going to pack any food because God said he'd provide food for his people in the wilderness. Yes, if you were an Israelite at that specific point in history. But God has made promises that he will keep. God has spoken of the return of Christ. He will come back. Peter talks about the fact that a lot of people say, you know what, that doesn't seem all that likely. Where's your God? He's forgotten about you or he can't do it. You take God at his word. Or even a passage about uh, living in the way that we ought to honor God. We like to quote the part where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But right before that in the book of Hebrews, it also says, marriage is honorable in all, and the one who takes it lightly, God will judge. So we can't have the one promise without the other. God will not abandon His people, but God's presence should both deter us from sin and give us hope of His love and concern and watching over us. So we need to rightly understand God's promises. But if we know what God's promises are, who they're given to, what they're about, do we believe them? God told Paul, for example, when he went into a city, I have people in this city and they are going to believe in me. God says in other places that he has purposed that there were people who are going to be saved and he's going to save them through the preaching of the gospel and we have the responsibility to carry out that task. So we might say, well, I believe the part about people getting saved, but God can just sort of make it happen on his own. Yes, he could, but the way he said he's going to do it is through us. So do we do it? We go to the other extreme and say, well, it's going to only take place if I put in all my effort. Well, it's God's power that saves people, not our effort. So we have to have a right understanding of those things. Do you take God at His word? This was the thing that sustained the people described as those of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Believing God at His word. Whether they were delivered from the trial or whether they were delivered through the trial, even through death. But if you're going to believe God is His Word, it doesn't start the moment that some life-threatening situation comes up. It's a habit that you have to develop in the daily course of life. You read something that God has said. You believe it. You show that you believe it by the way that you live. If you and I are not doing that on a regular basis before we get to a moment of crisis in our life, then when the ship looks like it's going to sink, we're not going to be able to say confidently what Paul said. So practice taking God at His word when you're not going through 
a crisis moment in life so that you are ready when you are. Verse 27, But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms, and a little farther on they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat on the sea on the pretense of setting out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. God said, I will save you, but God said you need to trust in me. How do you know if you're trusting God? Because you obey in accordance with the promise that he had made. Paul says, we have to run aground and then we'll be delivered. And these sailors said, no, we're going to put down the lifeboat and escape that way. And Paul says, that's not the way that God said it's going to work. You either need to follow God's plan or suffer the consequences. You cannot be saved if you do it your own way. If we trust God, it's shown by our obeying Him. Paul was speaking with God's direction to the men on the ship. Verse 33, Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. I think this echoes for us uh, other examples in the Bible where people are waiting for God's deliverance and God's provision. Daniel goes to sleep in the lion's den. Other people wait for God to work. Still looks like the ship is going to go down. Still looks like they're going to sink. But do they trust God's promise enough that they're going to eat and regain strength because they're going to have to swim to shore? Or do they say, you know what? It's it. We've given up hope. And at Paul's encouragement, they take food. They take heart. They prepare for what's about to happen. Verse 39. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach, but striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump aboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Sounds like a good story, right? 
there's a crisis, there's an adventure, there's a disaster, and then everyone, it turns out okay in the end. But it's actually true. And the thing that we should take away from this is that God kept His Word. And that Paul believed God at His Word. And Paul believing God at His Word was part of God carrying out the thing that he said was going to happen. Because there's a lot of examples in this story where things could have gone wrong, right? They could have said, you know what, we're going to try to fight the storm and the ship would have gone down. They could have said, um, we're going to let the soldiers, the sailors escape in the lifeboat. And they wouldn't, been, wouldn't have been there for some of the people to, pieces of it anyway, to float to shore on. And God's promise might not have been fulfilled. They could have said, you know what, we're not going to eat food because we don't think we're ever going to get out of this. And they wouldn't have had the strength to swim to shore. The centurion could have let the soldiers carry out their plan and kill all the prisoners. If any one of those things had happened, Paul would not have gotten to the island. God's promise would have not have been fulfilled. And this whole thing that the book of Acts has been driving at, that God is building His church and through specific individuals and His, His word is going to go forth, would have been thwarted at least in this instant. But God kept His word and Paul believed God's word. Do you recognize that God's word is true? I mean, we know this from a variety of passages of Scripture. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The contrast that Jesus highlights between himself and Satan, that Satan is a father of lies, and he's a liar from the beginning, and those who practice lies are his children. These are, these are things that we see all throughout Scripture. God's word is true. Believe it. First and Second Kings, this is a, a key theme in the book. The prophets would give a word. People would either believe or not believe it, but it would happen anyway because God said it was going to happen. And that is true both of prophecies, which in some way what God revealed to Paul was one of those, but it's also true of just other statements of Scripture. If God says He made the world, do we believe that God made the world? You know, scientists might say God didn't make the world. Who are you going to believe? God who keeps His promises or some guy who very well may change his mind next year? God said that certain things were His design for the world. Here's what the family's supposed to look like. Here's what government is supposed to do and accomplish. Here's what the church is supposed to carry out. Do we say, that's great, I have a much better idea than you, God. Church is not about equipping saints. It's not about being a testimony to the lost. It's about doing what everybody wants it to do, and then people will like us and they will come. That works for a little while, but it's certainly not taking God at His word. People say, well, you know, the best way to raise your kids is to let them do what they want, and uh, then everything will be easier. We know how that turns out. People say, well, the best way to run your marriage is for both of you to do your own things, live under the same household. You're both as good as the other one, so there's no 
Um, there's no priority of responsibility or of leadership. That's just, you know, that's just the way it should be. But that's not what the Bible says. So do we take God at His word about any number of things or even about the most important thing? What is the way to Christ? People will say, there are many paths to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. So whose word are you going to believe? The person who says you can have that way, or that way, or that way, or that way, or God who says Jesus is the only way to God. The decisions that we are called, the, the points of decision at which we have to uh, recognize whether we're believing God or not, are often not things like what Paul was facing, like, am I going to live or die in a ship in a storm, it's daily moments of life where we know truth and we have to say, am I going to act on that truth? In the way that we talk, speak truth, speak in love, in the way that we react to something that frustrates us. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give the devil an opportunity for you to be led into sin. In the way that we work, don't steal. Work so that you can give. These are the points of decision at which we are daily confronted with the question, do I believe God's word or am I going to go my own way? Can we, like Paul, say, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told? And that's a struggle, because there are people around us that say, you know what, what the Bible says, it's, it's outdated, it's patriarchal, it's foolish, it doesn't work. Who are you going to believe? God or man? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. You will stand before Caesar, Paul. I believe, God, it will, turn, it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Verse 44, And so it happened, they were all brought safely to land. God made a promise. God's people believed that promise. God kept that promise. Do you know what else happened alongside that? People who weren't yet God's people also saw that faith and believed God's promise, at least in some small way. Sometimes we think that the path to getting people who don't know God to know God better is to make ourselves more like them and to sort of concede things about what they believe that's not true. But what happened in this story? Paul stuck with his belief that what God said was true and he was going to act on it. And in turn, that led some of the unbelieving Roman soldiers and sailors and everyone else on the ship to also hear and obey God's word. I'm not saying they were all followers of Christ. But at least in some small way, they were drawn to accept and believe and follow God's word because Paul was faithful to believe and act on God's word. Do you take God at his word? Believing a promise that someone has made is tied to what you know about their character, their past actions, and the nature of the obstacle. What does this passage show us about those things? 
trust God, because all the way through Paul's life up to this point, everything that God has said has happened. Trust God because of the sort of God that he is. He's a God who cares for his people and loves his people, watches out for his people, and is accomplishing his work in the world. That's the, the person that you're trusting in. What about the obstacle? The ship is going to sink and you're all going to drown. God made the sea. You think he can save a ship from drowning? Sometimes we see the obstacle as this, and we see God as this because we have forgotten the glory and the majesty of who God is. And so along those lines, not the main point of the message, but just a side application. Walk out in your yard, look up at the sky, read through the Psalms, and consider the vastness and the glory of God, and recognize that the greatness of God doesn't mean that he's not aware of our problems, but the greatness of God does mean that he is far greater than all of our problems, and if he has said he is going to do something, what we see over here can't stop him. Believe God at his word because he's going to fulfill it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you keep your word. We wouldn't come out and say that we don't believe that you'll do it. But sometimes our actions, Lord, indicate that we have some doubt of whether you have the power or the desire or maybe even the interest to actually do the things that you've said that you will do. And so when it comes to becoming more like Christ, we want to look for a shortcut. It's not enough to do the things you called us to do, like read the Bible and pray and gather with your people. There's got to be some special secret that we have to find somewhere else to actually become more like Jesus or to do it in an easier way. When it comes to telling other people about you, you know, there's got to be some better way to do it, some gimmick, some amazing thing that will wow them and bring them to you. But you said, you know, even if somebody was raised from the dead, people who are unbelieving are still not going to believe. Your spirit has to give them new life through the power of your word. When it comes to what we teach our children, sometimes we don't want to put in the hard work of bringing them up in the discipline and the admonition of Christ because it is work. But Lord, you've said this is what we're supposed to do. Help us to fulfill that task. Lord, for those who are uh, growing older, sometimes society around us uh, says, the older you get, the less value that you have. So go off and enjoy what little life you have left. Lord, help those who are growing older in our congregation to see that, as Titus 2 said, they have a responsibility to be an example and teachers to those of us who are younger in the congregation and to fulfill that task well. Lord, for the kids, the world around us says that you should do what you want and your parents are dumb and don't listen to them. But your word says, children, obey your parents, for this is right. Lord, for all of us, 
it is easy for us to be entangled in the things of this world and to forget that you have said that you are coming back, so be ready, that you are wanting us to do certain things in the church, so do them. Lord, help us not to forget the purposes that you've laid before us. Some of that is we just need to review it more and have it more constantly in our mind. Sometimes it's not knowledge, it's acting on the knowledge that we have. Lord, wherever the, the sticking point is for us where we're not trusting you or not following you, Lord, help us to see that through the power of your word, the mirror of your truth, and to be changed to live more faithfully for you. We need your Spirit's power. We need the intercession of Christ. God, our Father, we need the carrying out of your mighty plan in our lives. We pray that you would do that even today. In Christ's name, amen.